Hi, this is Mercedes, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hey there, folks. Hi, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's a joy to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join me. It is Sunday, June 5th. You know, I'm really excited because we're starting a brand new five-part sermon series today, and it's called The Counter-Cultural Christian, and it centers in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. You know, if ever there was a time for us to talk about this, I think it's now. The word counterculture is a sociological term describing a group whose actions run counter to mainstream norms, and you can no doubt tell it's making a comeback in our society. The term was first popularized in the West during the 1960s, when it was used in the United States and England to label the movement to oppose the Vietnam War. But Christians are also countercultural, though they look nothing like the protesters of the mid-20th century. Being a countercultural Christian is a strong biblical theme, Jesus told his followers in John 15, 19, you are no longer part of the world. Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But it's quite another thing to figure out just what that means. I mean, there are multiple cultures and subcultures in the world which proclaim and embody different values, ideas, and intuitions. So how can we decide what we're supposed to be counter to? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to answer that question and more. So buckle up and get ready because we're fixing to get to it. But before we do, join me in an opening word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege once again of studying in your word, learning from your word. Lord, thank you for this new sermon series. Teach us from it, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. In this first part of the series, we're going to answer the question, What is wisdom without God? And our scripture reference is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16. So turn in your Bible or Bible apps to Ecclesiastes 1, starting with verse 12, and follow along. Here we go. I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. That finishes Ecclesiastes 1. Now let's start with Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 to 16. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, 
filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness, for who can do this better than I, the king? I thought, wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see where they're going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This was all so meaningless. For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Amen. You know, the average public library has between 10,000 to 15,000 books on its shelves. During the War of 1812 between England and America, the British invaded Washington, D.C. and burnt much of it to the ground, including the Library of Congress with its 30,000 books. After the war was over, Congress purchased Thomas Jefferson's personal library, 6,487 books to restart that library. That's a lot of books for one man to own. But those collections pale in comparison to that of Abdul Qasim Ismail in the 10th century. He was the Grand Vizier of Persia, a very wealthy and educated man. And he had a library that consisted of 117,000 volumes, more likely scrolls rather than bound books like we have today. Abdul loved his books so much that even when he traveled, and he traveled a lot, he never parted with them. So what did he do? How did he do that? Well, he used about 400 camels to carry his library, and these camels were all trained to walk in alphabetical order so that he could obtain the volumes he wished at a moment's notice. True story. You know, down through the ages, knowledge and wisdom have been highly prized by civilized men. And for many, the mark of wisdom has been the number of books they possessed. But Solomon's wisdom wasn't measured by the number of books he owned. His wisdom was measured by how much he wrote and how much he knew. According to 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 to 34, he composed some 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. He could speak with authority on all kinds of plants, from the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows from cracks in a wall. He could also speak about animals, birds, small creatures, and fish. And kings from every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Amongst those who came to hear about his wisdom was a particular queen. You may have heard of her. Do you remember her name? That's right, it's the Queen of Sheba. Well done. She traveled about 1,500 miles to present Solomon with gifts and to ask him hard questions to discover just how wise he really was. 
She was so shocked about how well he answered that she said in Second Chronicles 9, 6, I did not believe what they said until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half the greatness of your wisdom was told me. You have far exceeded the report I heard. Now, when I say the name Solomon, what's the first word that comes to your mind? It's wisdom, right? That's because Solomon was so wise that to this day, his name has forever been associated with wisdom. So it's a bit odd to read what Solomon wrote in the passages we just read. Go back with me and look at Ecclesiastes 1, verses 17 to 18, which says, So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this was chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Then in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 15, Solomon writes, Since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is also meaningless. And after spending a great deal of time focusing on the shortcomings of wisdom, Solomon writes in verse 17, So I came to hate life. Stop. Wait a minute. Solomon was supposedly the wisest man that ever lived. So who gave Solomon his wisdom? Aha, that's right. God did. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 to 13, we read, That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, You showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David. But I am like a child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your chosen people, a nation so great and numerous that cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, so as no one else has ever had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. So, God was pleased that Solomon preferred wisdom over wealth and honor. In fact, God was so pleased with Solomon's choice, he gave him all three gifts. Throughout scripture, godly wisdom is more highly prized than all the other honors a man or woman could receive. And that's because God is always pleased with those who seek his wisdom. So God is pleased by Solomon's desire for wisdom, and apparently so was Solomon. Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs to his son, and in Proverbs 4, 6 through 8, he repeated this theme. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her and she will guard you. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment. If you prize wisdom, she will make you great. Embrace her and she will honor you. So what's going on here? Why would Solomon be so driven to convince his son of the value of wisdom in one book, the book of Proverbs, and then turn right around in Ecclesiastes and tell us how worthless wisdom is? 
Well, before I answer that question, and I do have an answer, let's first examine why wisdom is such a valuable commodity. Now, I'm not going to quote all the Bible passages that back up wisdom's benefits, but here's just a few of the advantages of God's wisdom. Number one, if you have God's kind of wisdom, you learn to be peaceful, considerate, full of mercy, and sincere. Take a look at James 3.17. And because of that, even your enemies will be at peace with you. 1 Kings 5.12, Proverbs 16, verse 7. Second, if you have God's kind of wisdom, you learn to fear God and shun evil, Proverbs 3.7. And because of that, you tend to avoid physical danger and harm as well, Proverbs 13.20. And if you have God's kind of wisdom, you learn to give advice, good advice, and help others in making wise decisions, 1 Kings 3. 16 to 28. And because of that, people begin to want your opinion and or your advice. 1 Kings 4.34. Now we're talking God's kind of wisdom here. So where would you get God's kind of wisdom? Well, from God, of course. In 1 Kings 10 verse 24, we're told that people from every nation came to consult him and hear the wisdom God had given him. And that opportunity wasn't just limited to Solomon. James 1.5 promises us, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. So we have the same promise Solomon had. We can have access to the wisdom of God. But does that mean the people outside of God, in other words, non-believers, are not wise? Well, no. In fact, the Bible often talks about the wisdom of this world. I've got countless illustrations in my files and many of them contain thoughts and statements from non-Christians. And many times they have some pretty interesting things to say. But at its best, worldly wisdom is always going to fall a little short of godly wisdom. Why? Because human wisdom has a lower set of standards. Think about this. You ever gone to Best Buy and visited the electronics department lately? Have you ever seen the wide variety of TVs they have on display? In one aisle, you'll see TVs for sale for $400, $500, or $600 or so. And then in another aisle, you'll see TVs for $4,000, $5,000, even $6,000 or more. Now, based on those numbers, which would you think is the better TV? The more expensive ones, right? Well, why would you think that the higher price models would be better? Because we're pretty sure we'll get what we paid for. Sure, the lower price models will get you a good picture, but their standards of quality are lower. They are either more cheaply built, they won't last nearly as long, they have smaller screens, less resolution, so forth, so forth. The same is true with the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom. Human wisdom is based on lower standards. And what is that standard? Man is that standard. As Bette Midler once said, I have my standards. They may be low, but I have them. Most folks make their judgments based on their own level of morality. They'll either say, I'm just as good as that person over there, or they'll say, I'm better than so-and-so. What's the standard in those statements? Me, of course. By contrast, God tells us that his standards are higher than that. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Why are God's standards higher than ours? 
because scripture tells us we don't measure up to God. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone is sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Whose glorious standard? God's, of course. That's why when God challenged Solomon to set his life on the right path, God didn't ask him to walk in the paths of his father David, nor did he ask him to walk in the ways of Moses. God simply says to Solomon in 1 Kings 9.4, Follow me with integrity and godliness. In other words, walk according to God's standards. So godly wisdom is better than human wisdom. But what exactly does godly wisdom look like? Well, let's look at James 3, verses 13 through 17. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is a selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Amen. So what's James saying? He's saying that the mark of godly wisdom is that we are pure, peace-loving, gentle, considerate, etc. When you see those traits in a Christian, you've got a pretty good idea that they've tapped into God's wisdom. On the other hand, if you find a Christian who's hard to get along with, argumentative, picking fights, putting others down, then that person's not showing God's kind of wisdom. Have you ever seen a Christian who's been like that? Of course you have. And I don't care if you're a Sunday school teacher, deacon, elder, director, or pastor. If you act like that, you are not wise. So let's review. Godly wisdom is all kinds of benefits. And if you want God's wisdom, then do what pleases God. God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom, and it calls us to a higher standard of integrity and honor. So after all that, think back to our text in Ecclesiastes. Why was Solomon so negative about wisdom? Well, Ecclesiastes is one long involved commentary on life. And Solomon has an agenda in this book. He starts out talking about things that are desirable in this world. Things like wisdom, pleasure, success, wealth, and more. And he points out that all those things are good in their own way. But at the end of his discussion on all those desirable things, he says in Ecclesiastes 2.11, It was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And he starts out focusing on the one gift for which he was known, wisdom. His intention here is to show that wisdom without God is vain and empty. You know, down through the ages, some of the most educated and worldly wise have agreed with him. H.G. Wells said at age 61, I have no peace. All life is at the end of the tether. Wells' final literary work has been aptly called A Scream of Despair. Also, the immortal or immoral poet, Lord Byron, said, My days are in yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of life are gone. The worm and the canker and the grief are mine alone. And lastly, Bertrand Russell, a prominent atheist in the past century, wrote these words. Brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. 
blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness. It remains only to cherish, ere yet the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. These were prominent, intelligent giants in their day. Their writings summed up much of the wisdom of men in their day. And yet, for all the wisdom they thought they had, their lives were empty. Why? Because wisdom without God eventually gets boring. Wisdom without God becomes empty and worthless, and that answers the original question posed in the sermon title. But about this point in the sermon prep, I got stuck. I had no idea where I was going to go from here. And so when that happens, I realize I need to get back to the text and find out what I've missed. And that's what I did. And when I did that, I discovered the most intriguing statements about wisdom, such as Ecclesiastes 1.1, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. And then Ecclesiastes 2.16, for the wise and foolish both die. So in other words, wisdom alone can't spare you sorrow and grief. And wisdom by itself can't spare you from death. So wisdom has lots of advantages. But without God, there is little to protect us from the despair and all the fears of life and from the fear of death. Even the wisest man faces sorrow and despair. Even the wisest men die. So at this point in the sermon, I remembered a Bible verse I'd run across earlier in the week. That verse talked about wisdom in a unique way, but I couldn't think of how it could possibly fit into this message. So I copied it and pasted it into a Word document that I'd set aside for future use. Then suddenly, after reading what Solomon wrote about despair and death, that verse summed up exactly what needed to be said. What verse is it? It was 1 Corinthians 1, 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, where Paul said, God has united you with Jesus Christ. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Thank you, Lord. So is Jesus our wisdom? Yes, he is, because it is in Jesus that we gain the wisdom of God to deal with our despair and the wisdom to deal with our fear of death. In Jesus, God has given us the power to face what we could never face without him. This world is harsh and it's cruel and it's difficult to handle at times, but in Jesus, we have the power of redemption and resurrection. Let me bring our message to a close today. In the early 1970s, Carl Klostermeyer was a preacher in a church in Ohio. He had been told that he had cancer, that it was inoperable, and he was going to die. One day he called a pastor friend of his and asked what the Bible said about suicide. This young pastor thought he was asking a doctrinal question, but he wasn't. Klostermeyer was actually considering it. Sadly, he did, in fact, take his own life in 1972. But before he did, he wrote about his struggles, and that decision is one of his last articles for his church newsletter. And this is what he said, and I quote, Someone once observed that when Jesus hung on the cross, all he had left was his trust. Talk about rain. Jesus was stripped of all his clothing and all his friends, all his wealth, all his dignity, all his strength. All he had left while hanging there was his trust. And amazingly, it was that trust and that trust alone that saw him through his death and eventual resurrection. When the sun is shining in our lives, he said, we begin to form the impression that somehow it's been our wisdom, our work, our wealth, our strength 
that has kept the sun shining and the rain from falling on our heads. We think that somehow we've brought under our control God's blessings toward us. We assume that we are self-made people, but the truth remains that it could start raining and raining hard at a moment's notice and there is precious little we can do except get wet. For we are never self-made people, we are God-made people, and if anyone is to get the credit, it is to be him. We are, after all, always vulnerable to the enemies which surround us, whether we admit it to ourselves or not. So what is there to do when it does start raining? One option, of course, is to curse it, to engage in debate and speculation as to whose fault it is and what went wrong. I guess it's okay for those who seem to get comfort from such endeavors, but it really gets one nowhere. To me, the other option makes more sense, to accept the rain, and then to learn through it at last, that the only thing that we really have in our world to get us through, the only thing that we can rely on, the only thing that works, the only thing that no amount of rain can ever take away, it's our trust in God. And sometimes we simply fail to realize that until we are forced to face the rain without it. End quote. Being a countercultural Christian is a strong biblical theme, as I said in the beginning of this sermon. And Jesus and Paul told us that we are not of this world and we are not to behave like we are. And that goes against the norm of our society. But that's exactly what we have to do. There's no doubt this world can be harsh, can be cruel and unfair. And no amount of earthly wisdom can stop that from happening. But what gives us our advantage as Christians is the wisdom of God that we received by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've got to stand confident, knowing that wisdom without God is nothing. It's meaningless. It's like a vapor in the wind. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www whccnb.org Word of Hope Christian Church Real people A real God Real hope